This week we are in Psalm 115, Uh, and so one of the things we love is when you follow along, and that means finding a Bible, either on your phone or you can grab one out of the pew in front of you and and go ahead and open it up, and uh, we tell you this over and over again, it's part of just helping you figure it out if you don't know. uh, To get to Psalms, you just open right to the middle of the Bible, and that'll put you somewhere in the Psalms, and they're in order, so you just find 115, uh, and that'll get you in the right spot. Uh, This Psalm deals with God's glory. It deals with God's absolute sovereignty in the world, with the foolishness of idolatry, um, and, and really how God's people should genuinely trust God. Uh, and so now before we, we read it, I, I want to just remind you, though, that the people that are, are writing this, the, the psalmist who is writing this, is writing to people who have actually dwelled in lands that were surrounded by other countries who literally worshipped idols. Um, literally showed no respect to to their God. And so this is a a call to faithfulness that we're going to see here, and it's a reminder to to us and and anyone who's read this throughout the history of the church is a reminder that God really is in control, Um, that God is faithful to his people, and that he can be trusted. Uh, In a sense, it's it's like recalibration for our our soul, and and I only mean in the sense that, um, that we find God at the center of absolutely everything that we do in life and, and since God does not move sometimes it's it's us that move sometimes it's us who who get away from focusing properly on, on who God is and, and and where he belongs in our life and and so as we read this beautiful text um, follow along Psalm 115 and uh, we'll read the whole thing to start with <clears throat> not to us O Lord not to us but to your name give glory For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into the silence, but we will bless the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. God, you are amazing. We don't make you glorious. You just are glorious. And we ask for, your, for clarity of eyes to see your beauty and to live for your name in every aspect of our life. God, as we get into this text, please give us a renewed sense of what a wonderful thing it is that you have called us to faith in you that you have redeemed us from the pit, that you have washed us clean and adopted us as your very children. 
May we live today and every day, not for ourselves, but for your glory, O God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I confess, I am an absolute terrible dancer. Um, but I've never let that stop me. Uh, if you've ever been anywhere where someone's dancing, I tend to do it anyway. Um, it doesn't matter. It's the same reason I, I sing and I can't sing either. Uh, and, and part of that is I don't know anything about dancing hardly. Um, except all the joke ones you did as, as a kid, the lawnmower and those kind of things. Uh, but what I've found is since Sadie Piper's been taking dance classes, I, I begin to learn a little bit of, of things about dancing, that there are a few different genres, that there's tap and, and jazz and hip-hop and ballet, and, and I can't figure out most of those except for ballet because the shoes really give it away and tap. Uh, but really, every so often, I, I find myself just pretending to do what, what I see real dancers do, and, and I won't do that for you here today. Um, you know, I'll try to stand on my toes only to, to give up in pain immediately, um, or, I'll, or I'll find myself trying to see if I can spin many times in a row. And, and as the older I get, I don't know what happened, some point in my life, spinning um, didn't just make me dizzy, it made me nauseous, like immediately. Um, first two spins, and I just find myself incredibly sick. And, uh, and so I've wondered most of my life how it is these, these professional dancers, and even non-professional dancers, can spin and, and never get dizzy and never get nauseous, and they just keep going. And then uh, I can remember shortly moving after uh, out here to Manhattan, uh, that Laura and the kids and us found ourselves in, in one of those dance rooms with the mirrors everywhere so you can see how awkward you look dancing. Um, and we were goofing off as, as usual and I tried to spin and I got that, that feeling of like, oh, I just sick immediately and, and almost nauseous. And, and so I asked uh, Heidi, who runs the dance studio, how do you not get dizzy when you're, when you're spinning like that? Um, and she told me, you just, uh, you, you keep your eyes on the dot, uh, right on the spot, rather. And and, and she pointed over to the wall, and on the wall was, was not a dot, um, but the word spot spelled out and, and actually taped to the wall. And, and she explained this to me. I told you I wouldn't dance here, but I'm going to try to show you this. Um, <clears throat> don't worry, it's nothing crazy. Uh, basically, you keep your focus on this, this dot, and, and as they spin, their whole body goes while your head keeps looking at the spot on the wall. And then when you get, I'm dancing, aren't I? Uh, and then when you get back there, you whip your head all the way around until you're looking at that dot again. And, and the idea is if you keep your focus on this spot on the wall, um, that it keeps you from, from spinning out of control. It keeps you from, from, from getting dizzy. And, and then the spinning becomes a part of a, a beautiful dance. Um, so stay with me here. I, I, this is hopefully going to make sense to you in just a minute. Um, because when you look at this first verse, uh, Psalm 115.1, it's the one you, you probably know this. It's, it's like that spot on the wall uh, where you keep your focus on, even as you spin and so much goes on, that, that spot on the wall where it says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. See, we're, we're dancing through life and, and we're spinning, and if we don't keep our focus on, on living for the glory of God, which again is that spot on the wall, then we spin out of control and become dizzy and, and fall over. And life becomes something far less than a beautiful dance. Um, and honestly, that's one of the reasons I love this verse. Uh, that's why we have it stickered to our wall, right? When you walk out of our house, it's, it's not there so people coming in will see it. It's there by our front door. So when we're going out in, into the world, uh, that our family will see it and be reminded of this, uh, that we can remember this. And you see, our understanding of this first verse of the 115th Psalm uh, will shape our values. It'll shape our decisions. It's going to uh, change the way or, or shape the way that we use our money and our time and the way we interact with those in the world around us. 
Uh, these things have an actual uh, effect on us. And, and I know that sounds maybe just a little bit abstract, but it has real life, real world implications. Uh, let me just give you uh, one example, a historical example. You likely know a little bit about the story of William Wilberforce uh, over in England. Uh, he was a Christian and he fought for the abolition of, of slavery over there. And, and it was an absolute uphill battle that he was fighting. And, and really the first victory came about 20 years into this, this battle that he was, uh, he was doing. It was grueling work. And, and then on February 23rd in, in 1807, the British House of Commons, that's like our Senate and House and whatnot, um, they passed this bill which outlawed uh, the transportation of slaves anywhere in the British Empire. It, it didn't end or abolish slavery outright, but it was the first step towards ending slavery in England. And, and, and that evening, uh, the very evening that it passed, William Wilberforce went home and he sat down at his desk and he opened his journal and he began to write. And the words that he wrote were, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. See, he wasn't fighting for his own name. He wasn't hoping to go down in history. It wasn't for wealth. It wasn't for anything like that. What he was doing was, was doing what would bring glory to his Father who is in heaven. He was actively doing what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 5.16 when he says, Let your light shine before others so that you may, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so that's the goal he was going after then. And the end result of, of this focusing on God, on focusing on the glory of God, was not only glory to God's name, but, but also justice for those who had been sinfully enslaved. So as we look closer at verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, we, we see how different this petition here is from the wider culture where we live, where, where we almost proclaim the exact opposite, not to you, O Lord, not to you, but to my name give glory. See, the psalmist gets it absolutely right here that there is no room for pride in this proclamation, none. And we see this mentality in John the Baptist. You remember um, John the Baptist was, was out at the Jordan River and he was baptizing people and were coming, people were coming out to him and they were listening to him and he was a big deal. He was really significant in the area. And then Jesus shows up and people begin to follow him. People begin to go to Jesus. And, and the disciples of, of John, just people who had been following him, find themselves getting jealous. They see these people going to, to not their, the man they're following, but to Jesus. And, and they bring these concerns to John the Baptist because now Jesus was taking their attention. He was taking their glory. And John really steps in and helps them understand this. He, uh, you know, how should we view this, this loss of importance to us? And in John 3.30, John, uh, John says of Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. See, if we're John the Baptist... Um, I fear our tendency is, is sometimes to instead think, I was here first. I, I paved the way for you. Where's my credit? Where's my praise? You know, make a, a my name great too. You know, what a difficult thing it can be when we, when we stop worrying about how great and how kind and how powerful and how beautiful people think we are. And instead, we put our energies into how great and how kind and how powerful and how beautiful people think that our God is. And really, we should care about the glory of God's name. The number one reason is because God cares about the glory of his name. In Isaiah 48, 11, God is about to do amazing things for his people, and he says quite, 
quite plainly, for my own sake. For my own sake, I, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. It's the very words of God speaking of his own glory. And so we care because God cares. And yet, I love that the psalmist here then gives these, these two examples for why God deserves the glory. He states that God has shown us steadfast love and God has proven his faithfulness to us. You see, both of those things lead to, to God accomplishing salvation uh, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ for his people. God's love and his faithfulness for his people. And in verse 2, we, we hear then this, this mocking question. Why should the nation say, where is their God? I mentioned it before, but remember, Israel is surrounded by heathen nations. Um, Nations who, who worship idols and not the living God. And not idols like we tend to think of them. Sometimes we read this in, in our modern context, and, and too quickly we want to jump to work and children and reputation and money and things that we make idols of today. But you've got to understand, they're talking about actual idols here. Actual physical representations that have been carved out to represent God. And, and there's something appealing about idols. Um, they're physical. They're, they're present there. They're touchable. Um, you know, and, and it's this God that's exactly the way you want him to be, exactly how you imagine him to be. And I, I think there's, there's some irony in this, because in Genesis 1.27, we're, we're told that we are made in the image of God. And yet the opposite is, is true of idols. When it comes to idols, they are made in the image of men according to our own creative uh, creativity, according to whatever we want him to be. Um, so now we find in the Ten Commandments that the making of, of idols is, is forbidden. Uh, images representing God is, is forbidden. Uh, but still, the, the question here taunts Israel, doesn't it? Where is their God? And, and in fact, uh, uh, Pompey, maybe you've heard of him, in the first century he ends up conquering the area where the temple is, and, and when he gained possession of the temple in the first century, one of the uh, first things he did was force himself into the temple, all the way into the Holy of Holies. And, and when he entered the Holies of Holies, one of the things he was surprised to find was there was nothing in there. Uh, in fact, he, he says, the sanctuary was empty and the Holy of Holies was uninhabited. See, his point was, this is the Holy of Holies. This is where your God is supposed to dwell, and it's empty. Um, to him, that was a great insult. It's the same question we see here. Where is their God? And I think our response in one sense is, well, God is everywhere. Um, and he is. But the answer that we see here in verse 3 is in regards to God's position of authority. You know, verse 3 responds, says, Our God is in the heaven and does all that he pleases. It's a confirmation of God's complete and absolute sovereignty over everything and everyone. Um, you know, a little further in the Psalms, in Psalm 135, 6, uh, we see this idea again. God's freedom to act absolutely unrestrained. It says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. See, the psalmist is not phased by this taunting. Um, in fact, right at this point begins one of the most incredibly sarcastic polemics in all of Scripture. You know, this very... It's sarcasm. It's right here in Scripture. He's, he's mocking those who trust in idols. You know, listen to this. Verse 4 through 7. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. 
They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make sound in their throat. It's almost this response of, where is our God? I mean, you realize that your God is made by, by your own hands, right? Uh, it, it's like when Tom Hanks, you, you've seen the movie, when he decides to make his friend Wilson out of a volleyball that's washed up. Um, Tom, Wilson isn't real. You just drew a face on a, on a ball. Uh, that's what we're seeing here. This kind of this, this statement back, you know, of, you know, where is our God? Where is your God? And, and this whole list then is meant to point out that while our God is in the heavens doing whatever he pleases, your false God is not real and they do nothing. Absolutely nothing. It cannot save you. It cannot do anything for you. And, and that's where we really begin to understand how these ancient idols are similar to our modern idols. You know, money, money's not evil. Money's a great gift. It's a great tool, but money makes a terrible, terrible God. Money can't save you. You can't trust in money. The same is true of all other modern, modern idols. Children, marriage, your job. Uh, those idols are absolutely powerless to, to satisfy you in any real and lasting way. Those idols are powerless to redeem us. Um... Verse 8 then adds an interesting dynamic to this as well. It tells us those who make idols and those who trust in idols become just like those idols. And really what he's getting at is when we bow down to idols of, of any sort, we become worthless like those idols. And I know it's rude to say anyone is, is worthless, but, but understand that the, the hope of the psalmist here the, is that the readers will be spared from the foolishness of trusting in idols and turn to the living God. That's, that's why he makes a statement like this. Uh, the Apostle Paul made a, a similar statement on his, his missionary journeys. Uh, you know, he sought to convince people to turn away from, from these idols, these false gods, and to turn to the living God. In Acts 19.26, there's a, a man speaking against Paul. Uh, not for Paul, but actually against Paul. And he says, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And then beginning with, with verse 9 in our text, the psalmist makes clear that as we turn from falling idols, we should be turning to God, turning to trust God, um, trusting Him completely. The, the text here speaks of God uh, as our help speaks of God as our, our shield. Listen to verses 9 to 11. I'll, I'll read them again. It says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Three times he says this, trust in the Lord. And the first time he says it's, it's to the house of, of Aaron. It's a reference to the priest. Uh, the second time is to the nation, the nation of Israel. And the third time, it's to, to everyone who fears the Lord. See, we were told to glorify God, and, and, and one of the ways that we do that is this genuine trust of God. For us to realize that, that God has helped us in the past, and He will help us in the future, and so really we ought to be trusting God in the present. So now we, we use the words trusting and believing like they're the same thing, um, there's really a slight distinction in these two words. Really, trust is, is belief put into action. Um, during my, my summers in college, I, I spent a few of them working at the, these youth camps, and I think we figured it out one time. I made like 30 cents an hour once you got down to it. 
Uh, but one of the summers I worked at this camp called Sky Ranch in East Texas, and uh, my focus there was in the, on the ropes course. Uh, they trusted me with children way up in the air. Big mistake. Uh, really the highlight of this whole high ropes course, though, was this, this zip line. Uh, if I remember, it was about a quarter of a mile long. It began over 100 feet up in the air, and, and there was this huge tower that was, that was built at the beginning, and so... Uh, kids could walk upstairs to the top of this thing, to this large deck-like thing, and, and we'd attach them to the zip line. There were four, four zip lines, and we'd attach them to these zip lines. And, and then you'd go to the edge when it was time for them to go, and, and they'd almost universally would get to that edge and just be terrified. Um, on the ground, they were excited. Coming up, they were excited. Standing in the back, they were excited. But, but in that moment when they had to really jump off this edge and believe this wire was going to help them, they'd just panic. And we'd ask them, do you believe that this this line's going to hold you. Yeah. Have you seen it hold other people? Yeah. I mean, they knew it mentally, but they didn't trust the line with their actions at first. And part of our job, really, wasn't just to hook them up. It was to convince these, these children that this line would do what we're saying it was do, that it really, truly would hold you. You can trust this. Um, to convince them that the line was trustworthy and that they should put their trust in it. And uh, when we failed to convince them, it was one of the saddest things ever. They would walk back down these stairs just sad. But when we were successful, even if they weren't sure of it at first, they ended up with this incredible experience of, of, of riding down this, uh, this zip line. I think the question for us, we saw it a little bit last week, but we see it again this week, is do we trust God? I mean, do we really, really trust God? Do we trust him to provide for us when we follow his word? Do we trust God's ways are, are better than our own ways? Because I think we've all been in this place, really all of us, where, where we know what God's word said, but we think we need to live our life different to accomplish what we want to accomplish. Um, I think this is true in our, our views of revenge or, or vengeance, uh, sex, gossip, relationships. It's, it's true in so many different areas of our life. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I'll give you one example, one that even, even your children here, I know that sometimes you just zone me out. Uh, here, here's an example that you can actually understand. In, in God's word, Colossians 3.9, it tells us, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices. So we're told, you know, don't lie to each other. Yeah, there's these moments when we find ourselves, you know, you've done something you're not supposed to do. You know you've disobeyed, and, and you kind of have that, that feeling of, if I lie right now, they may never find out, and I won't get in trouble. It's those kind of moments in life when, when we've got to ask ourselves, do we trust what we, uh, do we, trust what we want to do um, in an attempt to escape this uh, trouble that we might run into? Do we, do we trust it so much that we're willing to do something contrary to Scripture? Or, or at the most basic level do we do we believe God's word and, and, and do what it tells us to do in these moments to to tell the truth even if it might be difficult even if we know we might get in trouble you know do you really do we truly believe that God's commandments are what's best for us verses 12 through 15 are really uh, they mirror the verses we just looked at 9 through 11 and those we begin to, to see again the, the listing of Israel in the house of, of Aaron and and everyone as those who fear the Lord. And this repetition is intended to emphasize things in the Psalms. It says things over and over again to draw our attention to it. And uh, as I read this, see if you can figure out what the emphasis here is. Uh, it should be real clear. Uh, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. 
May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Five times he speaks of God's blessing. Um, that this is the result of, of trusting in, in God. That the result is the blessing of God. And, and that blessing might not be how or when we want it to be or we expect it to be. Uh, but you know, you can and you should believe that, that God will bless, bless us when we trust in him. Uh, you know, verse 13 even makes clear that the blessing comes to both the small and, and to the great. See, it doesn't matter how uneducated or insecure or how others might view you. It's the grace of God being poured out on those who trust the Lord in this case. And, and the blessing that the psalmist here in, in verse 14 hopes for is increase. Um, it doesn't specify what increase is. And yet in first, fifth, verse 15, it does acknowledge that God can give the increase because God has created absolutely everything. Uh, I think the language of asking God for increase tends to scare us. Uh, we kind of want to overreact so far. You know, in one sense, it seems really selfish, uh, like we're going to use God as some magic genie if we're going to, to pray for some sort of increase. It, it almost sounds like a, a heresy, you know, health, wealth, gospel. And we're so afraid of that at times that we, we want to kind of push this aside and just, just move forward. But, but I'll tell you, don't be afraid um, to ask God for increase, to pray for that. You know, if you're seeking to have children, you're asking for increase. If you're asking for a godly spouse, you're trusting God for increase. If you're seeking a job, if you're starting a business, if you're hoping to get promoted in whatever job you have, that's increase. Uh, as a church, we pray that God grows us numerically. We ask that God will bring people to faith and that, um, and that many of those who he has already given faith might join this covenant community. And we ask God to provide for us financially and that, that he'll give us a building to meet in so that we might worship him and so that we might serve the community with it. That's increase. And we're hoping to receive those things from the hand of God by being faithful to his work, by being faithful to his word. There's no guarantee that God is absolutely going to give this, but that's the way God teaches us. Um, so these last two verses then are about our response to all this. Uh, first verse... 16, uh, verse 16 says, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. Uh, the point of this is not that, you know, God owns the heavens and, and the earth is yours. Um, really, the point of this is that God's created both of these, and God has made people stewards of these. Um, the earth, not the heavens. Uh, and that means that we have this collective responsibility with, with what we do with the earth. Uh, and this is certainly true in terms of what we might call environmentalism, uh, recycling, green energy, etc. Um, but not because we're, we're responding to some doomsday prophecy so much as it, it is a response to being good stewards of what God has made us stewards over. And that means that we use the world and the resources of the world in a way that honors the person who rightfully owns them, that rightfully honors the Lord, honors God. Um, and then this last phrase we see in verse, verses 17 and 18. Uh, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is not an argument claiming that there is no life after death. And it's worth saying that. Many people have read this and think that's exactly what it's trying to explain. Uh, what we see here is the psalmist is, is pointing out something very obvious. 
Um, dead people don't praise God in this life anymore. I just don't. Uh, my grandmother right now is, she is dead. She is in the presence of, uh, of Christ today because her faith was in Christ when she died and uh, her whole life. Uh, but her voice is not praising God from this planet today. And that's kind of the point here. You should praise God and you should do so now in this life that we have at this moment. Uh, but let me add this as well. We don't praise God nearly, merely because we, we should. Um, you can't do that, really. You could say words, but you couldn't genuinely mean it. We praise God because he is absolutely worthy of praise. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a great statement that I think will help us understand this. It's extended quotes, so try to listen. I'll read it clearly as I can. He says, The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical persons, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. And then he continues on a little later. He says, I, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist is telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. There's this desire to, to draw others into the things we we enjoy. That's, that's why this psalm here is telling us just how great God is. And, and then it explains, or exclaims rather, in that last line, praise the Lord. It's a call to join him in doing so. Uh, and so the question here for us then is not, not do we praise things? We do. I mean, you guys know me well enough to know the things that I love outside of God. Um, the question is, do we praise God? I mean, if we're honest, this can be a very difficult thing to do. And I say that because, uh, you know, particularly as we, we grow more and more aware that those around us sometimes not only think that God doesn't exist, but they think uh, that we're very strange people or very ignorant people when we claim that God does exist. Uh, when someone is, is sick and, and they're healed, you know, I, I find myself, uh, when interacting with other Christians, I find it really easy to say, you know, God was faithful to heal her. That just comes out naturally. But, you know, if I'm talking to a neighbor and, and they're asking questions about this who's not a believer, I'm tempted to say it differently. I just am. I'm tempted to say I'm, I'm so relieved that, that they're healed. Um, but really there's this, this hesitation to say, you know, God healed her and we're so thankful to God for what he's done. Also, I might tell my, my Christian friends while looking at the sunset um, that God's creation is, is beautiful. But when I've been with extended family who simply don't believe in God, I'm, I'm tempted to only say, you know, the sun is beautiful. Or do this silently think this in my head? There's this, this concern at times to think, what do they think of me? Uh, and so I encourage you, you know, challenge yourself to, to not in fear. Uh, to not in fear avoid these opportunities where you can praise God publicly. And, and that goes for the way we, we share Scripture, to respectfully share Scripture. Um, you know, at times I feel like the only time I, I see Christians sharing scripture is, you know, to stick it to somebody. Uh, really, the way we ought to be sharing scripture is a way to encourage others, to show them, 
That's how amazing our God is. And, and that might mean that you give someone a, a verse to someone and just let them know this has been an, an encouragement to me in the past, and you know, perhaps it will be an encouragement to you today. Um, the same is true of the way we, we speak of our plans. James, uh, the book of James, verse uh, chapter 4, 13 through 15 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. See, even the way we acknowledge our, our future plans, our, our hopes, is a way that we can glorify God in our, our speech as we interact with people. Um, so in the psalm, we, the psalm rather began with a prayer. Uh, it's a prayer to God asking that glory be given to the name of God instead of our own names. Um, that's you know, the simple explanation of verse 1. But, but honestly, when I first read this, I, I kind of thought, you know, that verse seems a little out of place. Uh, a little out of place because the next nine verses after it talk about idols, not about ourselves. Uh, you'd almost expect verse 1 to read, you know, not, not to idols, O God, not to idols, but to your name give glory. And, and yet that's not what he says. And, and it's not what he says. Um, it's not randomly out of place. See, there is this, this connection there that's happening. You see, when someone carves an idol, or carved an idol, it was, it was their creation. It really reflected back on, on themselves, the one who, who made the idol. I think even today, the, the idols that we, we find ourselves falling for um, is the same way. You know, when we, when we find ourselves uh, making an idol out of money, it's not the money really that's glorified, is it? It's, it's us. It's us, because, you know, I'm the one who acquired this great sum of money. Uh, same for other ones. When, when children are an idol, it's, it's really about us. These, these are our children. You know, these kids are awesome. Why? Because I'm awesome. Um, it reflects back in a really self-centered way for, for mother and father. It's about our own glory. And the same is true for all other idols which we carve out in our life. They're about us. And that's exactly why... You know, we should join the psalmist when he prays this in, in Psalm one, or verse 1. Um, really. Uh, this is one of those verses. That I, I, I really encourage you to take this verse, write it down, print it out, and, and paste it somewhere in your house where you're going to see it. Um, tape it to a mirror, to the side of the mirror, so you can still see yourself. Uh, a door, uh, the fridge, somewhere in your house where you will see it. And I, and I say this because just like focusing on that spot when, when spinning in the dance, uh, uh, you know, helps, helps the dancer to keep from spinning out of control. Uh, so the truth of this statement can help us keep a proper focus as, as we dance to this wonderful gift that we call life. Um, that it might serve us to do as Hebrews 2, verses 1 and 2 tell us, uh, which says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. To keep that focus on, on the glory of God, um, that our lives would be, alive, be that. Uh, you know, yes, uh, may we say and, and really mean in our hearts what the psalmist here is praying and asking God for. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. Let's pray. Uh, God, we, 
We do pray that. I, I pray that for us. Not to us, O oh Lord. Not to us, but to your name give glory. And may we do so because you have steadfastly loved us and you have proven faithful to us in the past and we trust that you'll be faithful in the future. But God, you know we cannot conjure up faith. And so I'm asking you, I'm asking you on behalf of everyone in this covenant community, everyone in this, this room today, please give us grace to trust you or give us grace to trust you more. That we would look to you as a lighthouse in times of trouble and that we will find peace under your faithful care for us. God, as our, our brother in Christ many, many years ago, Charles Spurgeon once wrote, we, we today pray as well. Though the dead cannot, the wicked will not, and the careless do not praise God. Yet we will shout, Alleluia, forever and ever. And we ask this in the glorious and all-powerful, faithful, and praiseworthy name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.